Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, you know, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer and you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording. And you'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatik, recording live here at Real Capital. Our guest today is Teresa Neto, who is the CFO of Granite REIT. Teresa, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Adam and Aaron. Nice to meet you in person. We did an episode not too long ago with Kevin Gorey, who is your CEO. And so we'll encourage our listeners, if they're here and don't recall or want to go back, that episode will give a nice sort of overarch of, call it 50,000 foot view of Granite REIT and the history lesson that's there. And we're going to focus a little bit more on sort of the nuts and bolts with your particular role as CFO. Before we go there, though, we always like to just talk about people's career paths. So how did you become a CFO at Granite REIT and how did you get into real estate in the first place? It started in 1986 and I have over 35 years of experience, but I didn't start in real estate. So I'm a CPA by training and back then that was chartered accountant. And I really started articling with one of the big eight at that time, which was Touche Ross, a former predecessor of Deloitte, and got my CA and figured out pretty quick I didn't want to become a partner. And that's when I went into industry. But I did have a chance to work in a number of industries. So I did work in the communications industry, the consumer packaged goods, and then telecom, and then ultimately landed in real estate. The one good thing about that experience is I got to do a variety of things throughout that time, and I was always open to trying something new. So early on, I was, you know, an internal auditor, someone everybody hates internally, but it was a lot of fun because I was working for a newspaper company at the time, and I got to travel all across Canada, and I was 25 and having a lot of fun doing it and learning a lot. And then when I went into consumer packaged goods, that was kind of my FP&A career and controller career. And then when I got to telecom, I got the opportunity to work in the treasury group, which is great learning because we were raising a lot of capital then. I was working for one of the first uh, CLEX, which were when uh, the government deregulated phone lines. We were one of the first companies out there building competitive phone business and cable business against the big guys like Bell and Telus. So that was a lot of learning and certainly from the treasury side, raising high yield debt at the time and then frankly going bankrupt and going through a CCAA. So lots of experience there and then found myself without a job and uh, an opportunity came up in real estate. And I think a lot of you are familiar with RealPack. And an opportunity came up at RealPAC, and it was something I'd never done before, and that means lobbying. And it was perfect timing because at that time, we were going through a transition to IFRS in Canada. So I thought, great, I haven't picked up a handbook in like 10 to 15 years, and it was going to force me to learn all about what was changing on the accounting front. 
And I went totally outside of my box. So I was lobbying the ISB, the FASB, working with international counterparts on IFRS. And I was teaching courses across Canada. I was teaching IFRS for real estate. So really used another side of my brain, which I never thought I had. And then an opportunity came up for a CFO position at a very small REIT. It was Retrocom REIT, which ultimately transformed into one REIT and then was ultimately bought out. And then from there, I've worked for a number of REITs. I've been involved in two takeovers. So I was involved with Key REIT. On which side of the equation for the takeovers? (laughs) Bought both times, bought both times. So Key REIT was bought out by ultimately what is Plaza Retail REIT right now. And then when I was at Pure Industrial with Kevin, Blackstone acquired us in 2018. And then Kevin did go to Granite. And I did work with the Blackstone team for a good year and a half. But then Kevin offered an opportunity to come over to Granite. And I definitely said yes. So that does obviously say something about his leadership. We're going to do this chronologically because I have a whole bunch of follow-up questions. Hey, one, you're now, and we'll get into the sort of the triple B or the unsecured debt that you're now issuing. What was the level of debt that you were issuing for that telecoms company? Oh, it was high yield debt. Yeah. So we were in the high yield market seven, I remember in the seven, eight percent range. So it's unrated. So uh, unrated. It was was the junk bond market, but we raised billions of junk bonds just based on the promise. Does that have anything to do with why you went bankrupt? (laughs) It might have something to do. If you recall, that was like in the 2000 range. Yeah. So yes, it had a lot to do with that. But it was a lot of fun while it lasted. Ultimately, the revenue that we were ultimately planning for and proformering never did transpire, which ultimately led to the bankruptcy. And then the other one, I'll just, you mentioned RealPAC. I don't know if Michael is there or not, but you can go back and listen to an episode with Michael Brooks on RealPAC. Michael, in that episode, describes the history of RealPAC, the purpose of RealPAC, how it positions itself as the community's lobbying entity. And they do a fantastic job of representing all of our interests to the government. They really do. And I can honestly say I saw that impact directly as we were lobbying with our counterparts, certainly with the U.S., their heavyweights on the lobby front. But we were working with the Europeans and the British team and the Asians. And I'll tell you, like, we submitted, we met with them constantly, and we did make some changes. And I think there are some IFRS amendments or ultimately what we're working with today because of that lobbying effort. Is that what you're most proud of, your time uh, there? Definitely. Yeah. It was how effective we were. And frankly, RealPAC's a great organization. Like They really do represent the Canadian real estate, commercial real estate extremely well and its excellent value as a member, the type of support that they provide. Agreed. Okay. So now you're at Granite. What's the environment like today in uh, February of 2023? I think the environment is very good. Look, we've had a very good run in the last three years when many other real estate asset classes were suffering. We have the benefit of being 100% pure play industrial REIT and benefited well during the pandemic. Obviously, the early months, we suffered like everyone else. But once we saw an exit out of the pandemic and e-commerce took hold, and as you all know, the industrial asset values skyrocketed, the demand for industrial space increased, everything was moving well. But of course, last year, things slowed down. But I think for granted, I mean, we still had a few things at play. And even though, you know, we put pens down when the markets closed and particularly the equity markets closed and now debt markets, you know, the the cost of debt has skyrocketed versus where we were before. I think now the transactions are off the table, but we were able to focus on development and our development program remains very strong and it's going to be delivering some very strong yields for the REIT. 
So that focus and that discipline, I think, leads us to some optimism down the line. And I think we're going to see some strong performance, certainly in 23 and 24, because one of the development program and two, because of the structure of our leasing. Don't forget, like our European assets are largely tied to CPI adjustments. This is obviously going to be, it's going to have an impact on certainly on uh, revenues going forward for 23 and potentially 24. One question back to the pandemic. So March 2020, everybody kind of lives somewhere on a spectrum of either low-grade panic to high-grade panic. Given that you were a pure play industrial, which for sure would have had the most breathing room the quickest coming out of that, what month from March onwards did you kind of finally breathe a sigh of relief that at least in your space, you were going to be in good shape? I think it would say around June or July. And I think certainly from our investment team, they were able to squeeze in, for example, a few acquisitions that were overlooked in the market. And a couple of them were in the GTA. So, you know, one thing about Granite too, we're always prepared for war. And I think that put us in a really particularly good situation relative to some of our peers. So we had beefed up our liquidity. We always kept our leverage low. We have access to a very large credit facility. And so what that did is give us an advantage to get into market early in those early summer months and pick up a couple of assets. And, you know, we're talking about at that time, you know, over 5% cap rates. So that quickly dropped to like three in a matter of months. But I think we knew that the market was going to start to become transactional. And we just saw the demand. And and beyond, you know, the GTA, I mean, as you know, we were about 50% of our exposure is in the U.S. And the U.S. came back roaring first before any market because they took a much more lenient stand on COVID. And they were back at it quite quick and transactions were happening. And we were able to, one, access equity and debt at a very low cost of capital relative to today. And we were able to take advantage in markets where cap rates were not quite so sharp, but they were going to come down quite quickly following that. But I think that's when we knew is in the summer, just by the activity that we were starting to see. And given your large access to capital already, you probably weren't losing that much sleep in the months leading up to it. Even though there was threats of you know lack of capital availability, you already had a pretty, very comfortable situation. It was a little tense in March and April because you weren't quite sure, you know, how the tenants were going to react. And for the tenant base, you know, also to what kind of government regulation would be issued and would our tenants have to close. And as you know, Granite has a fairly large exposure to Magna. And at that point in time, supply chains were disrupted and they had to close for a very short period of time some of their operations. So at that point in time, the big question mark was, are they going to open? What are tenants going to close? How is this going to impact rent collection and so forth? But soon we found out, and again, this is one of the fortunate aspects of the industrial asset class. So what we found out was that our tenants, for the most part, they were deemed essential. So most of our tenant base continued to operate during the pandemic. And not only that, but the demand for space increased through e-commerce, supply chain disruptions, onshoring, all of those themes. And that continues today. And so we're continuing to see that demand for our space, but we were able to really take advantage of that in 2020 and 21. So 2023 today, rents are up dramatically in the industrial space. Your leverage point is probably as low as, as it's ever been. Is there a need to take on more debt? Like what's your current strategy for raising capital? No, I mean, I think with Granite, we are very disciplined when it comes to our leverage. And we look at both the leverage, but more importantly, debt to EBITDA. And actually for Granite, we've been operating at certainly lower levels than we are today. And part of that is we were funding a fairly large development program that you know was almost 6 million square feet, which a good chunk of that is now coming online in 23. 
But in order to fund that, you know, we did take on additional debt. But you see the end of the line, and we know that that NOI and that EBITDA is going to be flowing through nicely at the end of 23 and 24 and take us back down to debt to EBITDA levels that we're more comfortable with. And for granted, you know, that's in that six and a half times to seven times range. And we're a little bit elevated today, but we see a path forward to where we can get to that. I think liquidity is still very important today in this market, and we want to make sure we preserve that liquidity. Aaron and I are property level financers, so we are opposed to your strategy of unsecured debentures. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. Stop doing it. But let's at least examine the merits of what it might bring to the table. Are you 100% unsecured debentures as your financing mechanisms? We are virtually 100%. We have a small construction loan that is secured against a development in the U.S. And so in the current environment, I know last year, I think there was some unsecured ventures that not for you, but for other groups that might have had some rocky transitions, but there's capital availability. I know that pricing is generally below what you'd find in the traditional mortgage market. Is that all still true? Is that what your experience? I think now the unsecured market could be a little bit more elevated relative to the secured market, but I don't know if it's enough for us to reach out to the secured market. But having said that, I mean, it is not part of our program. We typically look at secured as... Our last resort. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's fair for me to say as an investment rated entity, we don't have to go to the secured market under more normal times. And the unsecured market is extremely efficient and you get access to large sums of debt quickly and it's very efficient. But there is potentially a place for the secured market. We do have to be careful simply even from a rating agency point of view. Our rating agencies, they don't like to see a lot of secured debt. So even if we were to enter some type of secured debt, it would be on a small level. We're talking about 10%, 15% maximum. Certainly one of our rating agencies, that's the kind of levels that they want to see. So no matter what, we're going to manage to that. And we have to keep a fairly large pool of unencumbered assets. But I could see for some very select assets, so those, you know, really high credit rated tenants, long-term lease, good cash flow, I think there could be a potential one or two assets in our portfolio that it could fit rather well. But at this point in time, it's not a high priority while we still can access some unsecured debt. How do you manage the balloon risk when you're taking these large tranches out? They've got to be paid back at some duration. Is it just taking that risk? You can roll it back into another one or is there an availability of capital? Like, How do you manage that as CFO? I think you always have to believe that the bond market is going to be there. Now, we know practically that's not always the case, but you do it in two ways. One, you stagger your debt maturities. So you definitely want to make sure that you have some debt, probably 10 to 15%, hopefully, of your total debt rolling each year. You don't want it bigger than that because then, yes, you have a big balloon that you need to refinance. But to be a debenture issuer too, the market, you need to be a consistent issuer for the investors, one, to continue to follow the credit. And then you'll perform better from a credit spread because they have a bit of history for you. So you need to build that up. So a knowledge, so just the investor's knowledge base of you implicates the pricing. Yeah, they prefer repeat issuers for sure, because then you start to build a credit history with your investors and they stay up on the name. And then you can actually then access the market quicker. You don't need to do, for example, like a two week roadshow to meet investors. They kind of know you. you're meeting them certainly at least once every year, if not twice a year. So you're continuing to have conversations with them. They'll take that time because a lot of them are usually managing not only just one investment type, but multiple investment types. And they're generalists typically. So you want to make sure that they stay current in your name. So that's part of it. 
And so the other thing that certainly that we've done is you always need a fallback if the markets are closed. And so for us, that fallback is the credit facility. So it's important to have a good credit facility of a certain size that you know you can absorb some type of maturity if it were to come to that. Event, some sort of maturity event. Exactly. So one of your uh, debt maturities rolling. And with Granite too, when uh, you know we had a credit facility of half a billion, and then when we saw the markets opened up again, the bank market closed certainly in 2020, but in 21 or early 21, when it opened up again, we took that opportunity and, and we doubled size. So we're now we have a credit facility of a billion dollars. So, you know, we have that confidence that our largest debt maturity is 500 million. I know I can absorb that through the credit facility if I really had to. So that's a couple of ways that you can sort of manage those maturity schedules. What are the different types of unsecured debt structure? So I mean, I'm super ignorant, so I apologize. I can tell you about the secured world in great detail, but it's obviously you're issuing. Do you pick the amount? You're asking for a subscription amount. You're taking in bids, I guess, and you're hoping that it comes to a, a certain dollar amount. Are you picking the duration? Are you picking whether it's you know refinanceable? Like we talk about open and closed, and you know the flexibility. How do those different triggers or levers uh, play into your decision making about what type of unsecured debt you're trying to take? Our first go-to will be to the bond market, and so you'll look at you know when you look at tenure, how long do you want that bond to be? It's really going to be on your debt maturity ladder. So where does it fit in nicely? Right. right. So for you, maintain that ten to fifteen percent per exactly, year. Exactly. Exactly. And then if you have have a few years that you can play with, and you'll probably just look at kind of the credit spreads and, you know, what's going to get you your best coupon rate. So when interest rates were extremely low in 2020 and 21, we went very long. So we did a seven-year and 10-year bond, another seven-year bond. So we locked in at those low rates. It probably depends on appetite, too, in the the marketplace, because there's likely not a lot of appetite for long-term You know, but there's always investors that have that appetite. So raising in the bond market is actually quite efficient, i.e., you generally have some good feedback from investors to begin with. So you know what which investors are interested in, how much they're willing to put in, and what kind of tenor they're like. So you pretty well have a good idea how much of your book is going to be filled and at what tenor is your best pricing going to be achieved. So before you even launch, you actually have this whole soft-sounding process going on where you're going to have a pretty good idea whether or not the deal is going to be successful or not. And you can decide you can go or not go. So when that soft selling process concludes and you sit down and we say, let's go, I think you have some good assurance that it can be done. So extremely efficient, very different from raising equity, where you can't be open about it. You have to be quite careful when you choose to launch an equity deal. The other market that we turn to, and that's really when the bond markets are dislocated or we don't like where spreads are, then we access the bank term loan market. And the bank term loan market is great when you're investment grade like Granite because you have good banking relationships. The Canadian banks are extremely supportive of investment grade names. And so when the bond markets were essentially closed, we were able to access term loans. And term loans are extremely flexible. They're typically a little bit shorter in nature, like one to maybe sometimes five years. And we did actually lock into a few term loans at five years. But they're great because they have no prepayment penalties. So they're also great if you're managing towards some type of event like a large disposition that you would then use those proceeds to pay off that debt. Or it bridges that time when you can access the markets again or the unsecured bond markets again. So for us, those are the two primary unsecured debt types that we'll access. 
those bank financings, they're just a little bit more expensive than the bond market typically because of the flexibility it gives you. Like, Because you mentioned dislocation, right? They don't move in a synchronous manner, I assume. No, they don't. You're right. And you're right. We would turn to a term loan because it's less expensive than the bond market. And that's exactly what we did last year. You just came off a panel, mm-hmm. the CFO panel. Yes. I would love to hear your takeaways. I will admit we were actually out here podcasting, so I did not manage to uh, to catch it, which is uh, disappointing. So it's you and which other CFOs did they have on the panel? So we had Stephen Coe from Capri. We had Rags Devlure from Primaris. And we had Larry Froome from H&R Reed and then myself. So I think the one thing is we're all large cap REITs. So that probably didn't give a perspective of a small cap REIT, which might have been a little bit different. But I think it's safe to say that we were very much in sync. So we certainly talked about kind of raising debt today and the bond markets and bank loans and when do you access bank loans. And I think it's very consistent to certainly where Granite is. We're also, I think a common theme was, you know, stay disciplined to your debt metrics and debt targets that you've set. I think a common thing was that we stay disciplined to our debt targets and debt metrics. We had that in common. And when it came to issuing equity, again, I think all of us were certainly on the same page that unless equity is trading above NAV, there's no advantage to issuing equity below NAV. And the markets will punish you and investors will punish you. We also talked a bit about how do you allocate that capital? Do you allocate it to NCIBs, which all of the panels... What's that? NCIB is <laughs> normal course issuer bids, which is when you're buying back stock. So, Which you guys have been active in. Which all of us have been active in. And I think, you know, I think we're all in agreement that when you're trading at 25, 30% below your NAV, it's quite accretive to go out and to buy back your stock. Let me just do that for the listeners that may not be holding onto the rope. The REIT stock is 25 to 30% below the net asset value, value of your real estate holdings. That's right. And exactly. so it's accretive to just buy back the stock, knowing that at some point the stock and the market at large will return your stock price back to NAV and you'll realize the gains. That's right. Exactly. So you're basically buying back the stock at a yield that's far greater than certainly your cost of equity. So it's going to benefit your investors. But, you know, I think interestingly, though, comments from the panel was it's not a free-for-all either. You're not going to allocate all your capital to that. And in some cases, the only allocation to buying back stock is just free cash flow or proceeds from dispositions that you know will be accretive to your FFO per unit. If there was a small cap REIT CFO on the panel, how would they have differed in their opinion of the market right now? Well, I think for them, I mean, their focus, it wouldn't be our discussion about unsecured debt. It wouldn't they'd be, be taking secured they'd be, debt. They'd be talking yeah. to you guys. That's right. <laughs> they'd be talking to you guys. Their focus would be on secured debt and then managing those maturities. There's probably, they would be managing a, a credit facility as well, but that credit facility is probably backed by a number of assets that they would have to manage ensure that it's creating the right debt yield that they need in order to support that credit facility. And I think for a smaller issuer too, and I think it's coming, you know, we're seeing a few more deals of this is a convertible debenture market, which gives them a little bit of access to an unsecured debt portion of a debt instrument, but then allowing them to use some of their equity to lower that cost of that debt instrument. So, and we've seen that uh, where we've seen some convertible debentures and then the equity component having a premium on the equity piece of about 30%, which would make it then attractive and lower that cost. We're almost out of time, Teresa. And let's just wrap this up. Maybe just best bets or I know as a CFO, you hate to do that. So how about just what is your tone for 2023 and what kind of strategies are you putting in place today to take advantage of where you believe the market is going? 
I think the tone for 2023, I think it's very positive and certainly from the financing side of it. I mean, for ourselves, we don't have to really deal with any debt maturity of any size until November. And I've got a bond maturing with a low coupon, you know, compared to relatively to today. So I'm going to wait probably more time than maybe some others might wait, because as soon as, you know, we refinance the debt, we're into interest rates that are probably double from what I'm refinancing. But I do feel optimistic that the market will be open and it'll be constructive when we get there in and around the third quarter of this year. So I think it's looking good. And as far as the business, I think it's going to be a really positive year for Granite. I think we're going to start to see some really positive trends on our leasing side. We have seen that already, but a continuation of that in 23. And, you know, the development program that we're starting to see a lot of that stabilize yeah, if that this comes year. on market, your FFO yeah. grows, right? And that's a big, It's going to grow, league. exactly. And so it's really setting us up nicely for the second half in 2024. And if the economists are even half right, November should be a better debt market than we're in right now. So it's not the worst time to line up uh, maturity. No, exactly. But you I mean, know, who knows? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not going to try and guess the markets. Those days of like 2% interest rates are pretty well gone. And I think we understand that. But is it five, six? I don't know. I think it'll stabilize a little bit into the more normal levels that we used to see in the past of like three to four percent. I share the view. Teresa, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast today. I want to thank, of course, First National for powering the podcast, Real Capital for hosting us here at uh, the conference today. But once again, thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you. It's great talking to you guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.